Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Today, we are continuing our conversation about the neurophysiology of anxiety with the amygdala whisperer, Dr. Katherine Pittman. Dr. Pittman is a clinical psychologist, professor of psychology, and author of three books about anxiety written for both professionals and the general public. After summarizing the two primary neurological systems that generate anxiety, I talked with Catherine about how understanding neurology can help with anxiety management. So if I can just kind of do a little bit of a recap on what we've been talking about, you know, we've identified these two pathways in the brain that can result in this defense response, which is what is the basis of fear and anxiety, panic attacks. And one pathway goes from sensory systems to the thalamus, to the amygdala, and the amygdala decides whether or not to produce the defense response. The other pathway is the pathway that goes from the sensory systems to the thalamus and then to the the cortex to be further processed. And then the amygdala, which monitors the cortex, may react to that. And it may, quote, choose to produce a defense response or not produce a defense response, depending on what's going on in the cortex. That's the other pathway. And we also kind of noted that what goes on in the the, um, cortex may not even start with the sensory pathways that as the amygdala is monitoring the cortex, it may be that there are worries that the amygdala is reacting to, or there are other kinds of thoughts and imaginings that are going on in in the cortex that may or may not be grounded in sensory inputs that are coming in. It's just what the person's thinking about, like, is my partner cheating on me? And there's no evidence, but it's just a doubt that I'm preoccupied with. And then once, you know, your amygdala starts reacting to it, it seems like maybe it's an important thought because you're reacting to it, you know. And then you're saying, why am I feeling all these emotions? Why am I so worried? So these are the kinds of things we should know about and know that both of these pathways, the cortex pathway and the amygdala pathway, are pathways we should be considering when we're trying to help people manage their anxiety. We spent the first part of our talk primarily focused on anxiety and the neurological underpinnings of it. And I want to spend some time now thinking about what do we do about it? Uh, and so maybe as a place to start is that as clinicians, why is it helpful or or important that our clients have some understanding about what's going on neurologically? Well, I have really seen uh, such a difference when a person has an idea about something, about the processes underpinning their anxiety. It's a real game changer, I think. When you understand um, anxiety in a new light. For example, when you understand that it it is part of a whole process that has an evolutionary purpose, you can kind of put it in that framework and understand the contributions of, say, part of the brain, like the amygdala. One thing that happens is the person starts to develop a more mindful perspective of what's going on. They they become more capable of kind of observing the reaction and being more able to describe it and recognize that it connects to this evolutionarily ancient fight or flight response. And so they can then talk about my heart is pounding 
in a more observational way and say, this, this, the purpose of this is to allow me to run or to fight, to give me that access to that blood flow. And, and it just shifts the way that they think about it. And also, you know what it does? It causes them to question it a little bit. Whereas one of the things that people do when you're feeling anxiety, there's a feeling like this is real. This is something I need to take seriously. And once you start to understand that the amygdala creates this and that the amygdala can make mistakes about a stick being interpreted as a snake or or a little knot of hair in the bathtub being interpreted interpreted as a spider or a person frowning when they're confused being interpreted as they're angry at you and you're in danger you start to realize you can't completely trust the amygdala's interpretation of things and you then begin to think, I can't always trust my bodily reactions, my emotional reactions. It adds to that mindfulness in a way where the person is able to say, okay, my amygdala feels I'm in danger, but I may or may not go along with that. There, I have actually, I have another perspective on that. I can observe that reaction in myself and separate myself from that. And actually, you can even separate yourself sometimes from the cortex, even that, even though that is where we are like anchored, our consciousness comes from the cortex. But you can also say, you know, my cortex has some bad influences on me too. You know, that my cortex tends to be very pessimistic and to anticipate the worst. That's my cortex, you know. So anyway, I think it's a game changer when people are able to say there are things going on in my brain. And as I'm getting better, a better understanding of them, what ends up happening is that I don't take everything as seriously. And I start to think a pounding heart does not mean necessarily danger, or it doesn't mean I'm having a heart attack either. And my inability to focus doesn't mean I'm losing my mind. It means my amygdala is kind of hijacking my cortex, trying to keep me focused on danger whatever the amygdala sees as danger, which could be standing up to do a presentation right now. And you on one level can say, I'm prepared for this. My amygdala doesn't like it. (laughs) And people begin to start talking differently about this. One of my clients, one time she said, I told my amygdala, okay, amygdala, we're going down the basement to see some spiders, you know? (laughs) And, And there's just a way in which people begin to think differently about what's happening in their experience and in their brain, but in their body, you know, just it's a, so it's a game changer. I just want to say it's worth it. And you do have to make sure that we're explaining it in a way that most people can grasp it. You know, we can, I always say, do not give long lectures to people. It's so much better to connect it with their experience and let them tell their stories about how they experience anxiety, then connect up the fight or flight response to their experience. So there's ways to do this more effectively. I I do a lot of doodling, uh, drawing out the autonomic nervous system and trucks coming at us and things like that. So that that seems to work. (laughs) Yeah, doodling. And you know what, seeing it, I'm a very visual person. So that's why I have a dry erase board in my office where I tend to draw. So, so there's, there's ways of sort of mentally stepping away or separating from mm-hmm. the messages, the anxiety messages that the amygdala gives us, that the cortex gives us. But is there a way to differentiate between the amygdala anxiety and the cortex anxiety? Uh, yeah, there is in that 
the um, amygdala-based anxiety is more of the bottom-up anxiety coming from our senses and directly responding to the environment or a, a stimulus cue or a situation, a thing, a, an object, a, a sound. And we sometimes find the response confusing. Like, why, why did I react this way? And remember, that's because the amygdala is not a conscious part of our brain. And so when you have responses that are very strong or very surprising to you, it's often that it's the case that that's from the amygdala. Now, on the other hand, when something arises from, when, when the anxiety arises from worries, or if you are feeling like this situation that you're in is a disaster and you're kind of anticipating everything going to hell, you know, then you realize this is much more about my thinking processes. And it's more, remember, we talked about the amygdala watching cortex television. You're scaring scaring the amygdala with your thoughts or your imaginings or your worries. And that's true, say, with perfectionistic thoughts too. If you're If you expect yourself to not make mistakes and then when you make a mistake and in your cortex, you're saying, now I'm a failure, you're actually just human. We all make mistakes. But those kind of thoughts, once again, are going to activate the amygdala. So when you have more of a sense of where and can put it in words, what your what your distress is connected to, that's more cortex-based. If it feels more out of control and out of proportion to is usually the amygdala. If it's out of proportion, that's usually the amygdala. If you say uh, too much anxiety for this situation, I shouldn't feel this much. So, so, um, and, and I uh, have some little surveys that help people kind of identify where, where your anxiety might be coming from. So you can kind of localize it because remember the cortex and the amygdala learn and change in different ways. So if we want to treat it, it's good to know where it's coming from this particular issue that you're dealing with. I guess one of the ways I, th- I, I, I imagine it, if a bunch of people are walking down the street and there's a big bang, everybody jumps. That's the amygdala. Oh, yeah. Most, pe- most people then realize, oh, that's a car backfiring. It's the cortex. Some people, if they have the sort of experiences that lead to this, might think it's gunfire, mm-hmm. which again is a cortical response. Mm-hmm. And then they become very anxious. The amygdala is watching that and drives the anxiety even further, becomes kind of a positive feedback loop growing, mm-hmm. growing, growing, growing. And so it, it sounds like that's that's sort of the difference. The amygdala is sort of that immediate, it may be mm-hmm. wrong, but it's an immediate fast. The, right. cor- the, the cortex is in response, the initial response, what we're imagining, predicting, thinking. Yes. And it's, and it's that top down when there isn't even any kind of sensation, but you're thinking thoughts that are distressing. And sometimes I say the amygdala is sitting there, relaxed, having a cigarette, no reason to be upset. And then you start thinking certain things. And then the amygdala watching cortex television, whoa, you know, so we can do that. So knowing where do I need to target my attention and what's the intervention that this part of the brain will respond to? Well, let's move to that next then. How, how do you maybe I'm not sure I was going to say maybe the cortex is easier to deal with or at least easier <laughs> to understand but then I thought no maybe it's the amygdala what are the different approaches okay so when it comes to the when it comes to the amygdala 
The amygdala does not learn from lectures. It doesn't learn from explanations. The only way the amygdala learns and can change things is through experience. So that means if there's something that the amygdala has learned, for example, to react to, um, like you were mentioning, maybe the sound of an explosion being interpreted from a person's experience as bombing or um, shooting, someone shooting at you, which most of us haven't had, but many veterans have exactly that. Then the amygdala, when it, it responds to that sound too, it can react in a way that is different than a person who's never had that experience. So, but can you change it? Yes, you can change it. The way we change it is has to be through experience, not through talking. And what we use is exposure strategies, um, systematic desensitization, which is exposure, but systematic desensitization is when we approach it in a slow step-by-step process, um, starting with uh, situations that are less threatening to the person. And we're usually asking, you know, them to even rate it and setting up a situation for a person to teach their amygdala that this sound is safe or this situation is safe. And you can do this, you know, with someone doing public speaking or being around a dog or somebody having anxiety about being in a mall. I mean, just all kinds of things. We can uh, help educate the amygdala about the safety of a situation by giving it experience in that situation, getting in a car after an accident, driving or just riding. And um, what happens, and this is the thing that as people bringing the amygdala into the situation, it makes exposure different in my experience. You're, we're really saying you're teaching the amygdala something. And I, I can't teach the amygdala something without about cats without getting you near a cat. I can't teach the amygdala something about you driving without you getting into the car behind the wheel and driving. We're going to need to go there. And that's because it's what the amygdala needs. And that helps people understand what we're doing makes sense. This is the way we change things in that part of the brain. And also we, we can conceptualize when the person gets in the situation, like let's say someone's trying to get back behind the wheel and they sit in the car and they say, oh my God, I, you know, I just can feel my anxiety going up and they start kind of trembling. And you say, what's your, what's your, you know, anxiety score? And they say, it's about, you know, an 80. And um, they said, this is just what, this is just what, I feel this is it. And this is embarrassing and whatever they're, you know, they're kind of responding. And we say, you got the amygdala's attention. You got the amygdala's attention. And it's, it's having a fit right now. Like, no, no, this is unsafe, 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 but just hang in here. Cause your amygdala will get it in a couple, couple minutes, couple, maybe it'll be 10. I don't know. You know, my clients have said, I thought I was going to be there an hour waiting. But I remember one client saying after it was about six or seven minutes, she said, I can feel my fear going down. I can feel my fear going down. You know, that sense of it's not getting worse and worse and worse. I'm getting better. And she said, this is what it takes. This is how I you, immediately she grasped it. She said, I just showed my amygdala something, you know, she could feel that change and also kind of attribute it to there's a part of my brain that that dominates me sometimes that really gets me in trouble. And I just got a message to it. I just affected it. And so that that is one one way that really helps us to 
encourage our clients to cooperate with something that's difficult. But also, you know what else about the amygdala? Some things people think are just plain silly when you say, do this and it'll help you. Like, for example, diaphragmatic breathing. You know, I when I first was training as a psychologist and and I was trying to get people to do breathing exercises, they just rolled their eyes at me so much. They just like, what the heck? But if you can talk to them about now, you know how I introduced you to the amygdala. The good thing about this is we're able to study the amygdala with imaging techniques or we can watch how it reacts to things. So I can teach you a kind of breathing that we've discovered calms the amygdala down in just minutes. In fact, if you really want to look at it, to tell you the truth, because you have to ingest Xanax or Alprazolam and you have to wait for it to be digested and get to your brain, this deep breathing actually works quicker than Xanax, gets to your amygdala and makes it change. And the reason I know that is because of the imaging studies that have been done where we can watch in real time this person's amygdala calming down. And then, you know what? Then, you know what happens? People say, what's this kind of breathing? What is it? And they're interested and they don't say breathing, which is what, how many years did I hear breathing? You know, <laughs> how is that going to help me? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I find that people really do better when they understand. And I think this is one of the ways that that biofeedback can be supportive of this type of work because it's it's all about training and better self-regulation among the autonomic nervous system. So that would be respiration and heart rate, heart rate variability, skin conducted, temperature, um, muscle tension. It gives the, the client tools to help regulate themselves in those situations, but also trains down the autonomic nervous system. Because I certainly work with people in exposure who really can't tolerate it at first. And this, in trying to give them these sort of regulation tools, I think helps them get into it, it get, get into and stay with, because you have mm -hmm. to stay with the exposure. I, I often will tell people that exposure, it's, it's like you're trying to bore yourself into health because you just want to be bored by the stimulus, which previously had freaked you out. Yeah. The amygdala goes from danger, danger to, okay, nothing to see here. Right, nothing right. to see here, you know? And so what about the cortex? How do we, how do we work with that? Well, let's, well, let's stick with a couple more things that really help the amygdala that people don't really think about, but really are helpful. When you said so many people come into you and they're really, they're, I mean, their body's activated. You see all the sympathetic nervous system activation and all that. And sticking with the, the idea of what else can I do to calm my amygdala down? One thing is exercise. That when people exercise, we know from just measuring anxiety, which is different than directly observing the amygdala, we know that from measuring anxiety that anxiety can decrease as a result of aerobic exercise. In, in a matter of minutes again. But also the other thing that happens is now with imaging techniques, you know, with ways of measuring our, our brain, we can see that when you exercise, there's less activation in the amygdala. And the thing is, this doesn't make any sense to people either. They're saying, you know, I have this presentation at work and I'm really worried that it's either going to get me a promotion or I'm going to be stuck in this job forever. And this is so important and I'm so anxious. And you say, if you go for a run before you present, it will help you. They're saying, why? How? 
you know, you say, well, it calms your amygdala. And the truth is they've even not in humans because you know how humans are by having their brains cut open, but in studying other animals, we can even see that there's specific neurons that, that are affected by exercise in the amygdala, that it seems like there's kind of a homeostatic mechanism. If you think about it, it's a fight or flight response. So if you flee, it makes sense that there's some kind of mechanism in the amygdala that's kind of a feedback loop of, okay, we ran away. Okay, now you can settle things down. Whatever it is, I, I'll just sometimes say to people, your amygdala will think you got away, whether you did or not. You know, just, just try it. Just run and come back or just go for a brisk walk. And so it's something that really can help a person. The other thing is sleep, that we found that ex elongated periods of sleep are really helpful. And as you know, we go through a certain sleep architecture. And so my students, my students will sometimes tell me, I slept eight hours last night. I slept four hours. Then I got up and took the exam this morning, went back in bed, slept for another four hours. I said, no, you slept two, four hours. You get different stages of sleep when you have an elongated period of sleep. And one thing you get in those last couple hours is some big bands of REM sleep that is, is spaced out in the earlier part of your sleep that you don't get as much. So adding an extra hour of sleep to your, which in America, we, in the United States of America, we're like, oh yeah, sleep what? You know, I'll sleep when I'm dead, you know. But no, sleep makes a huge difference to the amygdala. And so I've had people who come in and they say to me, what can I do? Do I have to take medicine that I don't want? And I say, well, we have ways to affect your amygdala just by working on exercise and sleep for a while. And they, after a couple of weeks of, of changing exercise and sleep patterns, they come in and say, I really feel so much calmer. I didn't know I could change my amygdala's level of activation like this. And what we found is sleep and exercise both have effects in real time, like within, you know, 20 minutes or so you of exercise. And even the next day after good sleep or bad sleep, you can see differences in the amygdala. Once again, sometimes it helps to tell people that we definitely see if you tell people come in here after only having three hours of sleep and we're going to show you some images there, that, those people's amygdalas react a lot more strongly to certain kind of horrific images we like to show people when we're trying to get the amygdala riled up compared to people who have had a good night's sleep, right? But then if you get into a regular exercise routine or regular sleep routine where you have you end up changing kind of like the resting level of amygdala activation because of those things. Like working with generalized anxiety disorder, so many people, the first thing I'm trying to do is to get them to sleep more, which is tricky with anxious people, you know. Um, it's not as simple as just say, go get more sleep. It's going to take a little more intervention than that. And also getting them to do more exercise, that it makes a big difference in how their amygdala reacts. And so Relaxation, breathing, exercise, sleep, and exposure. Those are the four things that are really important with the amygdala. So what about the cortex? The cortex is trickier in some ways. It's not as, um, you know, it's not straightforward. Well, it's trickier. It's trickier in some ways, but then it's also the one we're better at treating because it's what we focus on all the time in our therapies. Uh, cognitive approaches that look at people's thought processes and look for 
what they might say, anxiety producing thoughts, but I would call amygdala activating thoughts. If we think of the cortex as the television that the amygdala watches and we want to say, what kind of thoughts do you think might activate the amygdala? And I've kind of mentioned if you're catastrophizing about something like, you know, driving to work and you're going to get stopped by a red light. And so you just sit there just freaking out because you're going to, you're being held back from getting to work and it's going to be what, 30 seconds longer than it was before, you know, since you had to stop and go again. And that catastrophizing kind of thinking or being very perfectionistic and holding yourself to rigid standards that cause you to constantly feel like you're failing when you're not failing, you're just being a human being. And sometimes coming up with whole plans for how to deal with someone being angry at you or something being broken or not being able to find your keys when actually 30 seconds later you find your keys or the person isn't mad or, but you have all this time you spend on that channel where the amygdala is, as I, I think I said last, last time we talked, we don't know that the amygdala can tell the difference between thoughts you're having and an actual experience of something. We're not really certain how that gets sorted out. And maybe it shouldn't in some ways. Uh, an example that happened with my daughter that I can tell you about, she she lived in this apartment during college where the fire alarm kept going off accident, not accidentally. Um, it was it was a wiring problem. The fire alarm kept going off and they had to go down in the basement and flip the switch off and flip it back on. So one time she's asleep and the fire alarm went off. And so she woke up kind of groggy and she's like, oh, damn fire alarm. And she went back downstairs, to flip the switch, you know, and then she thought to herself, wait a minute, I left a candle upstairs. Could, could there actually be a fire? Maybe there is a fire. Now, what was that? That wasn't her amygdala. That was her cortex. Her amygdala wouldn't have thought of that. Her amygdala had long ago been exposed so much to this fire alarm that there was no sense of fear about this fire alarm. The amygdala had habituated to that. So she goes upstairs and here this whole, this, these dried flower arrangement had caught on fire next to the, and she ended up throwing that in the bathtub and all that. Now, so you say, why did, why did she run upstairs? Cause her amygdala watched what the cortex was thinking. And if she hadn't done that, if her cortex hadn't weighed in on it and given the amygdala additional information. So we do want the cortex to activate the amygdala. But on the other hand, we're not sure if everything we think really deserves that attention, if that's a channel to spend hours and hours on. You know, if you're a person who worries constantly about things could potentially happen, but they don't, uh, a lot of times people will say to me, I, I'm going to try it. I say, I'm going to work with you on reducing your worrying. They say, okay, well, I don't know about that. And I say, why not? And they say, well, I've worried about my kids all these years and nothing bad's ever happened to them. So I'm kind of afraid to stop worrying. And I say, you're trying to tell me that you think your worry is kind of protecting your ch children, that this worrying, they're like, it sounds stupid to say that, but what if it is? And I said, well, let's just shift for a minute and let's just think what effect does it have on you? If you think that worrying about them protects them, okay, but what effect does worrying have on you? Well, it activates my amygdala, makes me miserable, you know. Blah, blah. It kind of shifts people's thinking again, where people start to say, yeah, there is a possibility something bad could happen to my kid always. And probably it wasn't my worrying that has protected them, but there's a doubt in my head. But then you bring in, but those worries active. Well, okay, I don't want those worries activating my amygdala. I'm going to work on 
reducing my worry time because I don't like the effects on my amygdala. I don't like the way I'm stressed. You could make the argument that actually worry does serve a purpose because if I didn't worry, I wouldn't care if my kids ran out in the middle of traffic. Right. But here's the thing. Worry in and of itself doesn't help. It's the fact that we shift to planning that helps. And if you just stay in the worries, 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 and you don't say, how can I keep my kids from running in traffic or what should I do to protect them and shift to planning or action, just sitting there worrying doesn't. My students often say that too. They'll say, if I didn't worry, I wouldn't study. And I say, I hear what you're saying, but don't say worry is what gets you good grades because it's not the worry. It's the fact that you open the book and start to study. The study gets you the good grades. The worry just alerts you to a potential danger. It's planning and moving on. So I really get into this. It's, you know, the appropriate use of worry is definitely beneficial. I really do think worry circuits are there for a reason, but you have to know how to use them. You have to know that the purpose of worry is to alert you to a concern, and then you need to make a plan to deal with it, but then you need to move on. You don't need to go back to worry. So we work with people on how best to make use of this, the processes in your cortex. One of the key things that we learned from the cognitive theorists, you know, uh, like, like Aaron Beck, was this idea that thoughts mediate emotions. And that is the cortex pathway. When the things we're thinking about or the images we have in our brain are influencing our emotional reactions in the amygdala. The thoughts do mediate emotions, but also we also have bottom up emotional issues going on too. So there's also that other process. We're talking about the amygdala pathway where the amygdala is reacting to getting in the car when you're in your cortex trying to tell yourself things like, I'm safe. I've driven for many years without accidents. There's the roads are clear right now. There's no ice on the roads. Blah, blah, blah. Trying to reassure yourself, but your amygdala is throwing a fit because it's reacting to the last time you were in this seat. Your leg was broken or, you know, your car was destroyed, or, you know, something bad happened. And and so do not get into this situation because it's a trigger. It's a trigger for the amygdala. So it's not just that thoughts mediate feelings. It's not just cortex mediates amygdala. It's the other way too. Amygdala mediates cortex, feelings mediate thought. Right. The amygdala definitely influences the cortex. And so I don't want, I mean, I think when we're working with the cortex, it's perfectly appropriate to, to use cognitive theories and cognitive therapies because that's what we're looking at. But to not think that's the only place emotions come from. Emotions aren't always based on interpreting events in the cortex. Sometimes emotions are direct responses to a trigger. You know, I'm a cognitive behavior therapist and I think of biofeedback as a piece of that connection. So it's not just the cortex. It's not just the cognitive therapy. I think what biofeedback and, and neurofeedback to some extent helps us do is give some support, give some shoring up of that irrational or the, the amygdala-based, limbic-based part of the part of the picture. Right. And it's, it's definitely operating in us. And we shouldn't think of ourselves as controlled by logic and rationality because we're not. I mean, that's just not the way our brains function. 
And so if we can talk just a little bit about some of the laws of the cortex, if you're trying to influence the cortex, you know, one thing is you can't replace thoughts. You have to, I'm sorry, you can't erase thoughts. You must replace thoughts. So, you know, if I tell people to stop thinking about pink elephants, it doesn't stop them from thinking about pink elephants. It actually increases the likelihood they're going to think about pink elephants because now this is where we're doing, we should be doing, Saul, we should be doing neurologically informed cognitive behavioral therapy. So we say neurologically, you can't weaken a neurological structure by activating it. The more you activate it, the more I keep talking to a person. I I had a uh, woman in a workshop one time who told me that she'd been working with this woman uh, for years on her guilt about her daughter being sexually molested at a daycare situation. And she said she can't, couldn't get her to let go of guilt. And I was asking her, what do you talk about in the session? She said, that's all we ever talk about is guilt, her guilt and her blame. And her, and I said, until you shift her away, you're confirming to her that you're very interested in, and you're stuck on it with her. You're co, co-obsessing. But if you look at it neurologically, the way to say it is you keep activating that neural structure of the guilt, the stories, and the way she's interpreting it. You keep strengthening it, strengthening it. We need to weaken it. We need to say, what do you want to do with your life? And let's start focusing on some other things because she was not letting herself you know, move on with her life. So you can't erase a thought. You have to replace it. Another way to look at that would be to say, change the channel. And this is, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm flipping through television stations and sometimes I get on a station where what people are talking about on that station, I won't label the station, but it makes me want to scream at them. And it doesn't make much sense for me to stay on that station and argue with it. I'm better off to switch to another station and see, sometimes that's what I think we do in cognitive behavioral therapy. Sometimes we stay on a certain channel and try to help the person argue with that channel when we'd be better off getting off that channel. And so that's sometimes what I think we do when, when we're working on helping people be mindful. Yes, you have that thought, but does, does it have to be the focus of your attention? One of my clients one time said, can I kind of like put a little curtain up so that thought is there? And I just, it's behind the curtain. I said, that's fine. You know, if you want to put it behind a curtain in your mind or one of my other clients said she was going to put hers in a box and close the lid or whatever. However, they imagine it. The thing is to be able to look away and to start activating other kinds of circuitry, whatever. I mean, it can be planning your garden. It can be calling a friend and talking, but doing things with your brain that don't, I I often say to people, how many channels do you think there are in your brain? They'll say, what else do I think about other than this? My goodness, how many channels do you have? You know, live your life. How about, what do you need to think about today? What what do you need to accomplish or what would be something fun to do? So not erasing, but replacing thoughts and, and activating different neural structures, which you know, of course, that puts me in the mind of uh, neurons that mm-hmm. fire together, wire together. So neuro- neuroplasticity is what you're talking about. It's mm-hmm. actually changing the neural networks. Exactly. Which brings up something. If you know that neurons that fire together, wire together, and that is the underlying learning process in the amygdala as well as the cortex, you have to have amygdalas firing to get new wiring, Right. And this is why using things like benzodiazepines and alcohol, which, you know, are GABA boosts, you know, they inhibit 
our neurons are not helpful in the treatment of anxiety. And they're also not very helpful in learning new things in general in the cortex because it just shuts down firing and you can't make new wiring. But it's so hard because our clients, they just know that medicine makes them feel good. Of course, it feels good. I, I tell them, you know why it makes you feel good? Because you're putting your amygdala to sleep. And isn't that nice to have your amygdala out of the picture? Because you're sedating it, you're inhibiting it, you know, it's great. But unfortunately, it doesn't just stay that way. You know, the amygdala will adapt. And so will the whole brain. And you'll need a higher level of it and a higher level. And pretty soon you won't be able to sleep. And pretty soon you'll start having panic attacks. It's just really a dangerous pathway to go down. Now, that's daily use, I should say. That's daily use of enzymes. You know, your brain adapts to it and needs more. But the amygdala is a very important part of the brain that is there to protect us and produce this defense response. And I think it's not going to just sit there and let you put it to sleep forever. It's going to fight back. And, you know, our brains are that way. They adapt. And, and I do know that you know, long-term benzodiazepine use is, is associated with, with worse panic attacks in, in folks with panic disorders. Not just in folks with panic disorder. This is the thing. People who, are, who got on, say, clonopin or something for uh, seizure, treatment of seizures, often start developing panic attacks when they've never even had anxiety issues before. So as we're wrapping up, I, I like to ask a couple of one thing questions, if that's okay. So first, what is one thing you want our listeners to take away from our conversation? I think one thing would be to realize this is a complicated idea, but the idea that anxiety, fear, that experience in your body is real, but it's not predictive that there's an actual danger. And that is such an important realization that you can feel afraid, anxious, you can even be panicking, but you shouldn't believe that that feeling means that there's danger. Now that some, someone has an understanding of the amygdala is what creates that, and we know it can be created in error. And we also, even if there is a danger in the situation, if there is a danger in the situation, but fight, flight, or freeze might not be the appropriate reaction, you're still, what's happening in your body is not necessarily telling you the best thing to do. So in other words, what I really like people to recognize is a distinction between the feeling of being in danger and the actual danger. That is so important to get that. So it's, it's sort of, what, what, what are you going to believe, the evidence or your lying brain? Yeah, your lying brain. Yeah. Just remember, your brain is not always right. And when you're inside the whole system here and you're experiencing something, you don't want to say, what I'm experiencing isn't real. What you are experiencing is real. And your blood pressure has shifted and adrenaline has been released. We're not arguing it's not real, but we're saying it doesn't predict that you're in danger. And, and finally, what is one thing that you do to manage your own stress or anxiety or worry? A good thing that I think of is that I often recognize that anxiety is anticipatory. That is, you have the worst anxiety before you're in the situation. So for example, when I have something coming that is somewhat of a stressor on me, like just like talking with you today, before I might have a little sense of edginess about things about, but once I get into the situation, I'm 
I'm fine. And I need to remind myself of that because we so often think if I'm this anxious now, imagine how I'm going to be when I get in the situation. But anxiety is anticipatory. So like next next week, my daughter's getting married and I'm, I'm going to need to go on a plane to LA and I'm doing all that. And so I've been noticing as it approaches, I get kind of feeling the pressures of all that. And I just tell myself, this is anticipatory anxiety and I'm not going to take it as an indication that anything's going wrong. It's, it's a feeling, it's real, but I try not to interpret it as meaning that something's going to go wrong on the plane, in the wedding, because so many times I can let myself fall into that. Just remember, you're going to have anxiety before things and you can push through it. Don't let it stop you. And I've definitely found that's been helpful in my life. Push through. It's amazing. Well, Catherine, thank you for a really interesting discussion and that really good last piece of advice, as well as the other advice you gave while we've been speaking. So thank you so much for joining us here on, on Healthy Brain, Happy Body. I really enjoyed it. And I'm really glad that we have people who are interested in taking advantage of this kind of information. Like I said, if we know this about the amygdala and the cortex, we should be using it. Should use it. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal, and our guide today to the healthy brain and happy body was Dr. Katherine Pittman, also known as the amygdala whisperer. She's a clinical psychologist, professor of psychology, and author of numerous books. You can learn more about Catherine and her work in the show notes. Remember, you can join NRBS at our virtual conference on October 21st and 22nd with a 25% discount by registering with the code HAPPYLISTENER at nrbs.org. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link in the show notes or wherever you get your podcasts. We really want to hear from you. So be part of this ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions at healthybrain at nrbs.org. Leave us reviews as well. It really helps podcasts like this one reach more listeners. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. This is the last episode of the first season of Healthy Brain, Happy Body. It has been an enormous effort to create this podcast and there are many people working on it with me. Particularly invaluable is the work of NRBS Board President Mitch Sater, Executive Director Angelica Sater, and Executive Secretary Kristen Mitchum. There would be no guides for us to learn from without Alex Vanderlyke and the gang at Collectively Rooted, an organization dedicated to supporting experts and organizations working to further the field of mental health. Most importantly, there are the experts themselves who so generously gave us their time and their thoughts and of course you, the listeners. We hope that you found this podcast interesting, fun, and informative. And we also hope that you reach out to us with your questions, with your ideas for future topics and guides, or or just to let us know what you think. And I look forward to continuing this conversation with you in future episodes on Healthy Brain, Happy Body.